Hello, and welcome to the podcast Euthanasia Pro and Con. My name is James M. Russell. Our guest today is Dr. Philip Nesky, founder of Exit International. In 1996, Philip became the first doctor in the world to administer a lethal, legal, voluntary injection under the short-lived Rights of the Terminally Ill Act of 1995. Four of Philip's terminally ill patients used this law to end their suffering before the law was overturned in March 1997 by the Australian Parliament. That same year, Philip formed the Voluntary Euthanasia Research Foundation, now called Exit International. Ongoing pressure from the Australian Medical Board led him to hand in his medical registration in 2015, and he now works full-time developing end-of-life options for the sick and elderly and publishing details through his online Peaceful Pill Handbook. Philip's autobiography, entitled Damned If I Do, was published by Melbourne University Press in 2013. The website for Exit International is www.exitinternational, all one word, no spaces, dot net. Philip, thank you for joining us today. Oh, good morning. Can you tell my listeners a bit about the current laws in Australia concerning voluntary euthanasia and assisted dying? Yes, I, I, Australia's got, uh, Australia's like many Western nations. We've got a aging population. Uh, we've got exposure to modern Western medicine. And of course, it's an issue which, uh, as the population ages, affects a great number of people who, who think that they would really like to feel they have some choices or options at the end of their their life, but unfortunately, the law hasn't reflected that changing sentiment within society. And the laws in Australia, uh, like they are in many places around the world, where suicide itself is not a crime, but anyone who assists a suicide can be looking at some very savage penalties indeed. In fact, three of the states of Australia still have life imprisonment as a possible as a possible penalty for assisting a suicide. So. It's a uh, so what happens is that in cases where people are desperate for assistance, uh, often um, when people find themselves seriously ill and desperate for a peaceful death, those who who step forward and and do provide that assistance, often out of compassion and love, can be looking at very significant jail terms. and And until the laws change in Australia, and they haven't yet, uh, we had a brief period back in twenty years ago. In fact, the anniversary has just come. Uh, where we were the world's first uh, legislation in the Northern Territory, where I'm from, uh, which allowed uh, a terminally ill person to get help from a doctor to die, and I helped four of my patients in that short period. But that was overturned after only eight months. Uh, And then Australia has effectively gone back into the dark ages, uh, while other countries and places around the world, I mean, Oregon in the next year, and then, of course, there's Holland and Belgium, Holland where I am now, Belgium, Luxembourg, Switzerland, of course, in Europe, and uh, now there's even other states of America, including California and Canada, too, of course, where you are. So, I mean, the world's changing, but Australia languishes. Now, Exit International sets itself apart from other uh, aid in dying organizations in that you take a non-medical approach to a person's right to determine the time and manner of their passing. Could you explain what you mean by a non-medical approach? 
Yes, yeah, so my, my, my views and I suppose those of my organisation have changed over the years. I mean, when I first became involved in that piece of legislation I referred to earlier, it was a very uh, straight, standard piece of legislation which allowed a person who was terminally ill to get help from a doctor to die. And uh, what happened was that people were terminally ill. They had to be assessed by usually a panel of doctors. And if they were deemed to be seriously ill, that is terminally ill, uh, that person would then be uh, effectively get consent or permission to take the uh, to be able to be given the drugs or have a lethal injection. And I think uh, over the years that followed the overturning, and I was quite comfortable with that law. I thought it was quite a good thing, and I I suppose I still think such laws are are, are better than no laws at all. But what I found, of course, over the next uh, decade or so, when our law was overturned and more people kept coming up and uh, talking to me and describing their situations and effectively asking for help to die, my views changed and I started to move uh, my position so that now I'm of the opinion that uh, the ability to end one's life, a a rational adult's ability to end one's life is really a a fundamental human right, Uh, that that it really isn't up to uh, seeking permission. And I mean, it's been recently described by one of the researchers in Australia that these models around the world now, which allow terminally ill people to get help from the medical profession to die, what we call medicalised models, are described as not only but also models where you not only have to be just about dead, but you also have to then seek consent. Now, if you believe, as I do, that, that, that being able to end your own life, that suicide is a fundamental human right and one that society shouldn't interfere with, well, clearly, uh, having to seek consent is not consistent with that. And so I think the idea idea of moving the medical profession into some gatekeeping role, which is what the, the legislative models around the world tend to do, so that you have to go and cap in hand and see a panel of doctors and describe how sick you are, and they will judge your case and decide whether or not you, you're sick enough to qualify. Well, that doesn't sit very comfortably with me, and it, it doesn't sit comfortably with the notion of, of uh, the ability to have a, a peaceful and reliable death at the time of one's choosing as a fundamental human right. That's really a, con- that's a conferred medical privilege, and I find that a little offensive. Uh, and as I said, I, I accept these laws, and I think they're, probably, they're certainly better than having no laws, and that's the situation we're in right now in Australia, uh, where anyone who helps another person to die can be looking at 20 years in prison. But what I want to see is it goes far, much further than simply introducing those forms of very codified legislation that's set out to stipulate exactly how sick you have to be and how many doctors you have to see and how many psychiatrists before you get permission to make use of them. Now, you mentioned before that you believe that uh, this is a fundamental human, it's a fundamental human right for every adult, sound mind to be able to plan the end of their life. Now, do you envision a time when the public, uh, politicians, and the courts will share that belief? Uh, look, I, you get accused accused of being a little, uh, uh, I suppose you get accused of being a little fanciful, thinking that it's going to happen in the short term. I mean, the reality is that in Australia, for example, we can't even pass laws which allow a person who's just about dead uh, to get help from a, from a doctor to die. I mean, the most conservative of legislation can't even get through the parliaments of Australia, even though when that question is polled in the Australian society, as it, as it is when it's polled in, 
in uh, many Western nations, if you go out and ask people, if you're suffering with no hope of recovery, should you be able to get lawful help from a doctor to die? You'll get eight out of ten people, be it Canada or be it America or be it in Australia or the United Kingdom, you'll get eight out of ten people say yes to that question. And yet what's happened in Australia and, of course, also in the United Kingdom, not far from where I am right now, is that even though eight out of ten people want that, it doesn't happen. The parliamentary process, the democratic process, seems incapable of dealing with this issue in a way that reflects the desires uh, of the of the uh, public, and that's disappointing. So your question was, do I envisage a time when one when when society acknowledges that this is a fundamental right, uh, not just for the people that are terminally ill, but a fundamental right of any rational adult? Well, I guess you'd have to say I hope so, but uh, as I said, you wouldn't feel very hopeful given the amount of trouble we're having getting even the most the most straightforward situation addressed uh, through legislation. Exit International hosts public meetings, workshops, coffee get-togethers, and you also conduct private visits as well. What has the response been? Well, I mean, we, we try to address people's needs. I mean, in a, in a climate which we find ourselves, uh, where it's illegal to assist a person to to end their lives, what I spend a lot of my time doing in telling our membership and members of the broader public, in fact, that given that it's a crime and you may well one day wake up and find yourself so sick that you're desperate to put an end to your suffering, if you haven't planned or prepared, then you're going to have to ask for help. And you might have to ask someone who loves you a lot to help you in some very practical way because you may have found yourself to be too sick to access the options. For example, you might find that you've got yourself a rather sudden diagnosis, you're rapidly rapidly deteriorating, somewhat incapacitated, desperate to get access to the best end-of-life drugs like Nembutal. That, that is the premier end-of-life drug, which is used in places like Holland, where I am now, and, and lawfully to end people's lives. But if you're in a situation where assistance is illegal, such as in Australia, uh, what I'm saying to the people, elderly people, anyone over the age of 50 who joins our organisation, that it would be a good idea, perhaps, to get your drug, access your drugs now while you can hoping that you'll never need them, but access those drugs, and that would require a degree of illegality, uh, but access those drugs and put them safely away so that if things were to deteriorate and you found yourself in an unfortunate situation, you don't then have to go and ask your wife or your husband or your children or someone who loves you enough to risk 20 years in jail to get on an aeroplane and fly over to Mexico to pick them up. So that idea of telling people how they can prepare ahead so that they can effectively, peacefully and reliably end their own lives, that is suicide, that's not breaking the law, suicide's not a crime, but prepare ahead so that you don't have to involve another person with what is this rather predatory uh, legal uh, penalty that's associated with assistance is what we do at these workshops and these gatherings, these coffees and chats and, of course, the home, the personal visits. So usually people have got particular situations where they... Sometimes they're ill, sometimes they're not. In the case of the workshops, most of the people who come to our workshops are an average age of 75, but they're not sick. It's just that they are 75 and they haven't been around long enough to know that they're not going to stay well forever. And they've often at that age seen some people that have gone through some pretty hard uh, end-of-life scenarios and they don't want to find themselves in that same situation 
trapped, as they often describe. I don't want to find myself trapped. And so they come along to workshops and say, well, what can I do? And I, at these workshops, say, well, prepare ahead. Uh, go off and get your Nembutel. Or if you're looking at some of the other strategies, and there are a number around, and we do a lot of work on, on, on making available uh, method, methods and strategies which do reliably and peacefully in life, such as using the gases like nitrogen or using, as I said, drugs that you'd have to seek out, but at least making sure that people know what they're doing. Because currently, when you don't get access to good information, which we provide at these workshops, people often find themselves trapped and trapped, of course, trapped people become anxious and desperate, and desperate people do desperate things. I mean, the commonest method the elderly use in Australia, and I'm sure it's true in other countries too, but the commonest method in Australia that the elderly use to end their own lives, often in the context of serious illness, is by hanging. Now, hanging is a grim and horrible death. I mean, but the reason that it shows up in the statistics is because, it's because, I mean, you don't need to know anything to hang yourself. Anyone can hang themselves. And rope's not restricted. It's readily available. And by hell, it works. Hanging works, right? But this is a grim and horrible death. And, it's, and I think that's a statistic which we should be ashamed of. But it persists while we leave in, in place laws that so outlaw any assistance. And so we try to get around that through these workshops by giving people the best information so that they can access things themselves and don't find themselves trapped and desperate and ultimately resorting to such, uh, such uh, unpleasant methods as hanging themselves. Philip, have you had personal experiences with voluntary euthanasia? Um, I, I mean, I know that you, you did have some patients before, um, but since then um, or before then, did you have some personal experience with voluntary euthanasia or assisted dying? No, the people often ask me why I why I uh, why I found myself uh, so involved, and in a sense, it's become such an important issue. Uh, and was that in fact uh, determined by some personal experience? It really wasn't. I I, uh, I I did medicine very late in life, uh, and I was I hadn't been out of medical school. I started when I was thirty five to do medicine. I was in my forties when I was. Uh, a relatively young doctor, a relatively inexperienced doctor, not young. In fact, I was much older than most of the doctors. Uh, when I was in, in the Northern Territory, which is my home in Australia, when I heard about this legislation being introduced by a particular politician who was who was keen on making some changes, he's really ahead of his time because this was 1995, and he said, look, I think we can do something about this. Let's change the law. And I just woke up one day, heard about it on the radio and thought, what a good idea, and went back to sleep. Uh, and it wasn't as if – it was only then when I, when the, 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 the opposition started in huge amounts of opposition from the church, from conservative religious groups, and also from my own profession, the medical profession through bodies such as the Australian Medical Association, came out saying, we're not going to have anything to do with this. This is a, this is a law which will never, never get through, and yet – I just sat there and watched as it became clearer and clearer that the majority of the public wanted it. And I, I was taken aback by what I saw as the insufferable arrogance and paternalism of my new profession, medicine, in trying to tell people what they should think about something as fundamental as death and dying. So that's how I got involved, through a, a feeling that, well, first of all, it was my own feeling. I thought, well, hell, I'd like that. I, I, I'm sure I would want to know that if I got to be so seriously ill or for whatever reason 
that I wanted a peaceful death, I could at least have that choice. I couldn't see why anyone else wouldn't want it. And I got really annoyed about the fact that the medical profession and, of course, the church uh, would be trying to tell me the way I should think about this. So it came almost from a uh, political or a philosophical uh, support or engagement with that concept rather than any personal experience. And now, as you indicated, I mean, since then I've been with dozens of people who have been very ill. Some of those people I've got to know extremely well. Uh, and I've been with them when they've died and when they've uh, used uh, used the practical strategies. They've either organised themselves uh, across the four cases where it was legal, where I built a machine so that they could press a button on the machine and the machine would deliver the drugs. Uh, and, of course, I've been with patients also bringing them across to Switzerland where, of course, the one country in the world where you can come in as a foreigner and benefit from their progressive legislation. So I've seen it in many of its uh, shapes and forms now, and uh, all I can say is that when I see a person who's going through a very difficult time uh, eventually have the peaceful depth they're so desperately craving, the feeling that I get, and I guess when we always universally see amongst family members who are often present, is one of immense relief. But this, this finally, this person has had the choice, and there's a great deal of concern and sorrow and worry about the fact that many other people around the world effectively are denied this option as we sit here, when I say we, I mean countries around the world anguish over over the passage of legislation that would change what is a very unsatisfactory situation at present. How would you ask my listeners um, to, if they wanted to further the voluntary euthanasia and assisted suicide movement in their particular country, what would you say to them? Well, of course, obviously, it depends a little bit on which country you're in. And I mean, a place if you're in Canada, for example, where we've watched with great interest the the, uh, the political developments over the issue of euthanasia and assisted suicide legislation in the Canadian Parliament, uh, obviously there, and then the way it's being played out in the courts, uh, in the courts in Canada, uh, I guess the important thing there, and it would also be true in a number of other countries, including Australia, to become involved in the political process. Because, as I said, even though I'm not a particular admirer of these not only but also models which, which set out these very strict conditions where you have to be very, very sick, etc., etc., I still see that as being infinitely better than having no options in place, even for the clearest cut case, that is, the people suffering from terminal illness and dying. So... Make sure that those laws pass and make sure that they stay in place because there will be immense pressures, and we're seeing that playing out now in Canada, uh, immense pressures to try and overturn and upend those legislative initiatives. And this, of course, is also true in states like California and the US. In, our, in my own country, Australia, uh, well, in Australia, of course, I'm, I urge people to get involved in the political process, but also to bear in mind that that's only going to be a stopgap measure. The other thing I'm urging people to do is to become informed, informed about making sure that you've got choices in place right now. That means learn about what you need to know. If you need to know about drugs, find out about the drugs. Make sure you get access to the drugs and safely store them in case you need them because that puts you into a much better position than a person who sits on their hands and does nothing about it uh, and then finds themselves in trouble. 
And in a country like I am now, I'm based in Holland now. I mean, Holland, of course, in many cases, these, these arguments have washed through the system and the debate here is really a very exciting one. And that's, of course, the debate about whether, as a human right, every person over a certain age, and I totally support this, and I'm so glad that it's being played out as a debate here in Holland, whether every person over a certain age, that is over 60 or whatever you choose, 70, should be issued uh, 10 grams of Nemutau as their right. In other words, when you get to the age of 70, the state gives you the drug, doesn't tell you to take it, but it says you've got the drug. If you want to take it, you can. If you don't want to take it, you don't have to. But that idea of allowing people who are what we might describe as tired of life, people with non-medical reasons for wanting to end their life, very real choice. Now, that seems in many ways light years ahead of what I'm seeing play out in my own country, Australia, which of course is one of the reasons I'm here in Holland because it's actually it's quite refreshing and enlightening to be in a place where, where we've seen the debate, the earlier debate, uh, play out and the societies have moved on and I can just hope that uh, other other societies around the world including Australia eventually one day one day catch up so I guess it's a long answer to a, a short question which really was what can you do well what you should do is I think as I said summarizing look at the situation in your own country work to change the legislation in that country and then look at your own personal situation and become informed. Find out what you need to know so that you at least have got a new family. You have got this option stitched up no matter what happens to the laws. In other words, it doesn't matter if they change the laws or not. You've got your own little solution in your own cupboard so that if things go bad, you've got that choice. Philip, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Well, thank you. Thank you, James. And, and have a good day. Thanks a lot. Take okay, care. then. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to the podcast Euthanasia Pro and Con, and our guest today was Philip Netsky, founder of Exit International and co-author of his autobiography entitled Damned If I Do. The weekly episodes of this podcast will alternate between the for and the against side of the issue. Our purpose is to provide you, our listener, with all the information necessary for you to form your own position on euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, or possibly even change your previously held position. Please subscribe to this podcast. And for information about past and future episodes, go to our website, www.euthanasiaproandcon, all one word, no spaces, dot com. And please tell your friends about this podcast. Finally, Euthanasia Pro and Con is dedicated to my friend, Jacobo Louis Fuchs, and dedicated to his son, Carlos Fox. Thanks for listening. Hope to have you back next week. Peace.